brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Hallelujah and hello, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and it's no surprise to anyone that the system thinks it has all the answers. But as we've started digging deeper into things that our Western society has banned, ignored, or pushed out of the circle, we find that many of those topics are not only important and deeply interconnected, but these subject areas might be some of the most important avenues of study to understand what it is to be human and where we actually are in the seven-layer cake of reality. I'm talking about the toothless, authority-driven, mainstream religions that have discarded their depth and remain so shallow that they're merely shadows of their more robust origins, as well as the rich, spiritual, meditative, and shamanic practices of the indigenous cultures the empire has trampled over, but also the blanket ban on psychedelics and entheogens and the labeling of them as dangerous and toxic substances that have no noteworthy value. And if we wanted to get crazy, we could add in a full range of higher side themes, from near-death experience and remote viewing, to abduction encounters, strange sightings in the woods, and occult ritual contact with something on the other side. Well, across the board, all we get is a big fat nothing to see here, and that hypnotic pinwheel of pixels to keep us thoroughly sedated and moving through the old 9 to 5. Though the tide is turning, it can't come fast enough, and we're still playing catch-up to many cultures and past eras where exploration and experimentation in these realms were welcomed. And speaking of experimentation, one of the most famous cracks in the quarantine comes from today's powerhouse guest, Dr. Rick Strassman, and his well-known DMT trials over the five years between 1990 and 1995 where, after a long two-year pursuit, he actually got the system's rubber stamp to go ahead and perform the first new human studies on psychedelic drugs in over two decades, which focused on the most powerful and naturally occurring compound, dimethyltryptamine. And these DMT trials are famously described in Dr. Strassman's well-known book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, and the documentary of the same name. These days, Dr. Strassman is the Clinical Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine and the President and Co-Founder of the Cottonwood Research Foundation. He's also released two more recent books that we're going to focus on today, 
DMT and the Soul of Prophecy, A New Science of Spiritual Revelation in the Hebrew Bible, and his fictionalized autobiographical novel, Joseph Levy Escapes Death. So let's get into it. The DMT doctor himself, my friend and yours, Dr. Strassman, welcome to the higher side. Well, thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> yes, this is a, a real honor and a pleasure for me. Your work has had a big impact on me, and I'm sure the audience is familiar with the original DMT trials enough that we don't need to give them that much background. But maybe we can start with why you chose dimethyltryptamine, because you had options, and this is what you decided to go with. What was the thinking behind that? Well, I didn't start off looking at DMT. I began with an interest in the pineal gland as a spiritual type of organ and looked for some chemical it might produce that would have psychedelic effects. And this was just the time of melatonin gaining attention as involved in psychology and psychiatric problems. So I began looking at melatonin. But that didn't turn out to be very psychoactive. As we now know, it's primarily sedating. And by the time I finished my melatonin work, I had discovered or had learned about DMT, which is also made in the body. It's naturally occurring. It's what is called endogenous. And it also is quite powerfully psychedelic. There's no question like was the case with melatonin. And it had been used in previous studies before, had been given you know, safety humans in the 1950s and 1960s, early 1970s. And it was a relatively obscure drug, so it wouldn't garner the same kind of publicity that an LSD study might. It was quite short-acting, and I knew that uh, giving a psychedelic on a research unit in a busy university hospital would be stressful and might trigger adverse reactions or panic attacks. So I figured if it was a bad trip, it would be a short bad trip. It wouldn't be a six or 10 hour <laughs> bad LSD trip. So those were the main reasons. I was also still focusing on the pineal as a potentially spiritual organ. And there were some circumstantial data suggesting that the pineal might make DMT, even though it was not known to be the case then. Mm, mm. Yes, that is some great context. And it is pretty well known that DMT is a natural compound produced in hundreds, if not thousands of plants out there. There's also some rodent studies that give us some clues. But I still do hear a lot of confusion over this question of if DMT is produced in the human body, or more specifically, where it's produced and when it's produced, what those catalysts are. And there has been some work done since your trials, right? Is there anything we can say now that maybe you couldn't have said then that's maybe more definitive? Yeah. Well, when people first discovered DMT in human tissues, blood, urine, and spinal fluid, they looked at the animal data, which indicated it was made in the lungs, primarily. You know, so there were many studies that demonstrated the existence of DMT in human blood, and it was always believed to be made in the lungs. But the last maybe 20 years or so, 15, 20 years, with the advances in molecular 
biology, it was possible to locate more specifically where DMT might be made. And in particular, the presence of the necessary enzymes to synthesize DMT. And so the first human papers came out in 99, 2000, didn't really show much in the way of the presence of the necessary enzymes in human tissues, including lung. So that put a damper on you know, how to understand where, what specific organ the DMT is made in. In the meantime, in 2013, there was a rodent paper demonstrating DMT in the rodent pineal gland. So that, in a way, confirmed the hypothesis I put forth at the end of the DMT book in 2001. So the wisdom from 2013 on was that there is DMT in a living rodent pineal. The question at that point, though, is, is it being made in the pineal or is it being stored there from some other organ, like the brain or the lungs? So the same group in Ann Arbor, Michigan, that discovered DMT in the pineal started to look more carefully at the organs that contain the enzymes necessary for the synthesis of DMT. And it turns out, number one, the pineal gland does not have the necessary enzymes. The other finding was that the brain does. The brain itself contains the machinery necessary for DMT synthesis. And also, the levels of DMT in the dying rodent brain increase by at least a factor of two, up to a factor of, I think, 11. I might be wrong, but at least two. And because of the pineal data, they concluded that the DMT that was found in the pineal at that time in 2013 was actually brain DMT that the probe snagged on the way in and out of the pineal gland. So the whole pineal question is thrown into doubt again. But what I think is the most important finding is the brain makes DMT. So you don't really need a pineal gland. And there are people without pineal glands who seem to live normal lives. So the pineal part of the puzzle is never a crucial part. The more important element was, can you get enough DMT in the brain for psychoactive effects? And it turns out that concentrations of DMT in the rodent brain are as high as concentrations for the more well-known neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine. So the concentrations of DMT in the brain are rather high. They're comparable to well-known neurotransmitters, which then raises the possibility of a DMT neurotransmitter system which would be quite interesting. Each of the neurotransmitter systems is responsible for a certain quality of consciousness, uh, a certain aspect. Serotonin is responsible for mood and impulsivity, dopamine for reward, 
norepinephrine for excitation stimulation. So if there turns out to be a DMT you know, neurotransmitter system, it would be fascinating to determine what part of consciousness that regulates. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, that is a great breakdown for people. And so when it comes to those DMT trials, I think a lot of people listening are vaguely familiar with the experiences that are talked about. They are quite varied all over the map, all over the spectrum, but I think people have heard some of them. And to fold in the other element of your latest book, how would you introduce people to DMT and the soul of prophecy? Where does this latest book fit in? Where does it take the research? Well, one of my questions that I brought to the DMT study was if DMT could produce spiritual experiences. And the model spiritual experience which I approached my research with was the Zen Buddhist model. I was raised Jewish, but in my early 20s began a course of study and practice of Zen Buddhism. So the ultimate goal of Zen Buddhist meditation is enlightenment, called a Kensho, the temporary at least attainment of nirvana, Satori, the flash of reality. And the phenomenological nature of a Kensho is pretty free of content and imagery, feelings. It's just kind of an awareness or a merging of the personality with the ground of all being, so to speak. So there's no personality, there's no sense of self, there's no sense of time, space. And that kind of experience was really rare in my volunteers. One person out of nearly five dozen described that kind of an effect. And interestingly enough, you know, that was a fellow who was a religious studies major in college and had continued studying mysticism after graduating and was really hoping for and interested in a mystical, unitive, white light kind of experience. So that was our only volunteer with that kind of an effect. Everybody else's experiences were much more personal and full of content, interactive, relational, extremely visual, and all those strong feelings, terror or bliss. People also retain their own sense of self. Their personality was maintained. They were able to ask questions, to provide answers, to interact with the contents of the space that they found themselves in. So, you know, rather than the formless, unitive white light experience, the majority were interactional and relational. So I went back to the drawing board after my studies were over and gradually gravitated towards looking at religious models because they had been around much longer and were quite adept at both describing altered states brought on by meditation or prayer and extracting information from those states. 
not simply describing the colors and the sounds and the feelings, but being able to extract useful and intelligible information. You know, like what's that state good for? You know, what do you learn there that isn't otherwise available? So I had studied Buddhism and it didn't quite fit with the data. And I looked at shamanism and for any number of reasons passed on it as well. And I'm Jewish, so I thought, well, maybe there's something in our tradition. So I started to read the Hebrew Bible and was really impressed with the descriptions of the prophetic state by the prophets and other individuals that are articulated in the Hebrew Bible. There were a lot of similarities between the phenomenology of the prophetic state and the DMT state, you know, the visions and the voices and the physical feelings, the sense of reality. So the book is a comparison of the prophetic state and the DMT state and what the similarities are, what the differences are, what the utility of the Hebrew Bible might be in terms of understanding and utilizing the psychedelic state. You know, one thing before we talk much more about prophecy is my definition of it. Most people think about it as foretelling or predicting, but I expand that definition to include any spiritual experience described in the Hebrew Bible. So it could be an out-of-body state, it could be inspiration, it could be extra courage, it could be visions and voices, visions of God or of angels. So it includes the altered states that are described by the famous prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel, for example, but it also includes any spiritual experience by anyone, not necessarily a full-blown prophetic encounter with God. There could be you know, lower levels of a prophecy with that you know, definition. Right, right. And I think this makes a lot of sense. I've talked to many guests who, the further you go back, there seems to be a real connection between entheogens and religion. And who knows exactly how deep it is, but it's in the mix. At least experiences seem similar. And the big thing that interests me is that these seem to facilitate some kind of contact with beings or entities. So, yes, whether it's these prophetic states or DMT, seems like a much better match than the Enlightenment states of the East. And you introduce a term in this book called theoneurology, which you say uses as a bridge a modern reinterpretation of medieval Jewish metaphysics. And medieval Jewish metaphysics is something I know is very deep. I've looked at the Tree of Life a time or two. But what can you tell us about this subject and what a modern reinterpretation of that looks like? Well, I'll try. It's material that tends to land in the weeds pretty deep, but I'll do my best to not get drawn off onto too many tangents. <laughs> you know, it starts with Aristotle, as most science does, most you know, philosophy as well. So Aristotle divided the mind into the intellect and the imagination. 
and every experience is some combination of those two mental faculties. The imagination is the location of anything which is not abstract. So it includes perceptions, vision, audition, taste. It includes emotions, anxiety, depression, fear, joy, elation. It includes the body, being comfortable, not being comfortable. Um, inner experiences of bodily processes, you know, the body occupying space. So those are the experiences which are laid down and perceived in the imagination. The mind or the intellect or the rational faculty is everything except imagination. You know, so it's you know, facts. It's abstract ideas, you know, mathematics, which aren't dependent on physical representations, as it were. So you know, the Arabs translated Aristotle first, the Muslim philosophers, and you know, then the Jews began to translate Aristotle from the Arabic. But in the you know, processing by the Muslims of Aristotle, it became more spiritualized. The notion of God and of angels and of man and you know, the relationship among the three. And you know, prophecy. I mean, Aristotle talked about inspiration, and he believed in God, but the highly developed, fully articulated notion of the prophetic experience wasn't quite part of what Aristotle was working with. But for the Muslims, it was because of the importance of prophecy in Islam's mission. So the Jews then started to look at the Arabic writers about Aristotle and what is called you know, metaphysics. Metaphysics is the physics of the invisible. So it describes and works with the mechanisms which are behind non-physical manifestations. For example, thinking or feeling or prophecy. So they began working out how does the prophetic state work? What is the science behind it? But because back then there was no distinction between the natural world and the spiritual world, the natural world was a reflection of the will and the power, the intelligence of the creator and sustainer of the natural world. And most commonly within those traditions called God. You know, so a theory was developed that for communication to occur between God and man, which is the way one defines prophecy using those traditions' understanding, how would that work? How would God communicate with humans? So the idea was that God emanated influence, radiated, and it went down the line, as it were, through what was called intermediaries, which would then spill out or you know, radiate upon the human, which would involve 
downloading divine information both into the imagination and the intellect. So you would have visions and you would have voices that would occur within the arena of the imagination. And those images would represent divine information, what the content of the visions was meant to communicate. Mm -hmm. So it would be up to the stimulated intellect to interpret and extract the information which is being displayed on the screen of the imagination. So what I'm proposing in the Prophetic States book, you know, DMT and the Soul of Prophecy, is that DMT mediates the imaginative contents of the prophetic experience, of the voices and other visions. But the way in which the DMT and prophetic states differ profoundly is in regard to the source of the elevated DMT and the stimulation of the intellect, which I don't think really occurs that much on the psychedelics. It's more influenced by education and training, those kinds of educational, intellectual exercise Hmm. right on well it is this context that is so interesting to me and you have to set it inside some kind of context and i do think that that's a pretty good one it's a good background to understand kind of the plane in which these things take place in the imagination i guess we can call it and I really want to try to understand these entities in both cases or either case. It is a massive interest of mine. Maybe they're messengers of God. And I love that this book categorically breaks down every aspect of these communions, I guess we could say. The voices, the messages, the look and smell of these beings, the emotions they invoke, the lasting effects of the encounters. I mean, you really compare and contrast pretty much everything that you can, right? I did, yeah. It was a huge project, a huge undertaking. It took me 18 years from beginning to end. Hmm. And it was a number of years into the project before I actually put that theory to the test by doing the actual one-to-one comparisons. I had been you know, thinking about it and taking notes and you know, reading all this stuff. And I would just kind of casually say, oh, yeah, the DMT and prophetic states are really quite similar. But I hadn't really done the research. I hadn't really compared what was in the Bible with my records of the DMT experiences. So I was really gratified by the overlap, the similarity, but it was only limited. And that the phenomenology was quite comparable. But the message value, the content of the extracted information between the two states was quite different. Um, Also, the prophetic state is a lot more interactive. It's a lot more highly refined, which got me thinking of a new way to describe a spiritual experience, which is the degree of interaction between the contents of the state and the person undergoing it. You know, usually when you're tripping, you're kind of passive. Generally, 
you just you know let things happen to you. You don't really know exactly what to do or how to do it. And one of the things that stands out in the prophetic literature is a number of ways with which to interact with the beings, with the contents of that state, in order to get the most out of that contact. Well said. And I know that this jives with your background, and that's probably why you were attracted to it, as you said. But I am curious, why not choose another modern data set to compare it to, like the hundreds of UFO encounters or the communication that occultists have with spirits through ritual? Because on one hand, you have this firsthand data set of these trip reports that you were there for, that you administered. And on the other hand, we're talking about texts that are thousands of years old, maybe been translated a few times. They definitely wanted to support their worldview or were dealing with a religion. So that's going to probably taint the way some of these things are described. Why did you, I mean, I know why you chose it because it is in your background, but why did you choose it over say, UFO encounters or those communions that occultists talk about with spirits that also seem kind of similar? Well, I think from the point of view of the phenomenology of those states, yeah, the visions and the voices of UFO encounters, occult spiritual encounters, NDEs, those kinds of things, the phenomenology is similar to both the DMT state and the prophetic state. But kind of, you know, burning issue, as it were, which has impelled me throughout this whole process is, if so, so what? What is the significance of what's experienced in these states or these encounters? And, you know, you have to point to the Hebrew Bible, even though it's old, but it has enduring influence throughout Western civilization. Our economy is based on the Bible, philosophy, theology, ethics, and morals, psychology, political science, the philosophy. You know, all of those are based ultimately on concepts, notions which are introduced in the Hebrew Bible. So it's extraordinarily powerful and extraordinarily enduring. And any tradition that has got those attributes, those characteristics, it's you know the best available. It's the most powerful, the most influential, and the most enduring. But the important thing is to go straight to the original text. You can't rely on the accretions which have formed over you know, the millennia, making it organized religion with all of the pros and cons which is associated with so that's why I've, I have isolated or you know, limited my studies to the Hebrew Bible. You know, very little rabbinic material, no Talmud to speak of, no Kabbalah. So that has allowed me to really study carefully the Hebrew Bible for quite a while in the original language, in the original Hebrew, and relying on all of the classical commentaries as well which unpack and unlock some very difficult semantic, grammatical, and narrative material. Mm -hmm. Those are fair points. And something else I was going to say about the original text, see, I grew up 
in a private Catholic school. And I mention that only because something that I recently learned is that the encounters with these so-called angels that were described or depicted to me as a child were way different in the original accounts. They don't look like the winged and haloed holy figures that you see in the stained glass window. These things are sometimes covered with eyes, ten limbs of fire, winged lions, reptiles, multiple faces. And this is how a lot of the beings from the Hebrew Bible are described. At least those the, the things you reproduce in this book. Now we're talking. That is a closer match to the weird spectrum of things seen in the DMT experience. Well, that's right. Yeah, if you begin reading chapter one of Ezekiel, it's totally mind-blowing. There's this, you know, roar of waters in Ezekiel's head. He falls down, and then he has this vision of these winged beings with eyes on their backs and their wings. They're spinning, they're moving, they're turning without their legs change. It's completely, you know, there's a huge blue expanse. He's grabbed by an angel by the hair and gets yanked through space. There's spinning balls, spinning wheels. There's, you know, fire. Yeah, he's terrified. It is quite DMT like. <laughs> yes. And let's get a little bit into the messages that come through in these encounters, which I think is the real meat to help us understand our relationship to these beings in both cases. Sometimes they do just seem like their appearances, but there is. Something to be said about common threads of the contact and certain messages that we can pull on, right? Yeah. Well, if you look at the messages that my volunteers came back with, they were personal, mostly personal. They had attained greater insight into certain psychological personality features. They may have resolved certain conflicts, physical or emotional or psychological. The spiritual experiences, except for that one fellow I was talking about early on, the rest of people's spiritual experiences, the content was consistent with their personalities, with their pre-existent personalities. So one person was a programmer the software designer in our study, and his peak vision was being in a white room with bits of information pouring out, you know, the basic bits of existence, the ones and the zeros of existence. So that kind of a flash is consistent with the nature of the volunteer himself. It wasn't as if he came back with new verbally communicable insights or knowledge that everybody doesn't already know, at least intellectually. The pre-existing ideas that he had, the notions, the assumptions just became that much more real and true and certain. But if you look in the Hebrew Bible, what is the prophetic message? And it's pretty vast. And I think, yeah, I don't know if it'd be that useful to go over them piecemeal. But the two main lessons from the Hebrew Bible, one of them relates to ideas, to thinking, to the truth. 
And you know, the other relates to how to live in the world behaviorally. So the first truth, as it were, is that there is one God. And that's the message of the Hebrew Bible with regard to belief. There's one God who is the creator and sustainer of existence. And with respect to the behavioral key or the behavioral piece of information, it's the golden rule, which is to love your fellow as yourself. And everything else behaviorally devolves from the golden rule. You know, loans and property boundaries and houses and buildings and weights and you know, measures, all of that devolves from the golden rule. Ultimately, you love your fellow as yourself. And with respect to the thinking processes, what you keep in your mind and you know, how you understand everything around you, it all begins with there being one God. Right. See, that's the curious thing. When I look at that set of data, it's like, well, did they selectively edit stories or did they twist the accounts to fit the ones that justify their worldview? I mean, that's the thing. Like, I don't know how, how literal or how accurate these ancient stories are compared to the DMT trials that you did firsthand. Is it an apples to apples comparison? Well, it's an apples to apples solution. And, you know, that's the solution which I came to in understanding the reality of the DMT experiences. And it's also the solution I came to regarding the reality of the accounts in the Hebrew Bible. And that solution is to treat them as if they were real. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In which case, you can then say, okay, what follows from that? Then you apply yourself to understanding what's going on in that real alternative universe using all of the tools at your disposal. You know, your thinking, your intuition, your knowledge. Yeah, you know, your tools of observation. You know, with the DMT stories or the accounts of the DMT volunteers, I was hearing accounts of experiences. And in the Hebrew Bible, you're doing the same thing pretty much. You're hearing accounts of experiences. Mm -hmm. And they could be edited, but everything's edited. <laughs> uh, even the DMT reports, they're being edited by the mind and psychology of the volunteer. So you can't get too hung up on what's the original text or what's the original experience. You've got what you've got, and you've got the tools at your disposal that you've got, and then you get to work and try to figure out what's going on and what it means and you know how to apply it and what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. So you're kind of stepping into an alternative level of reality in both sets of experiences. And it's incumbent on us because of their meaning and their profound influence to understand what they're about and what to make of them and you know how to live our lives in accord with them. Fair. Totally fair. It is what it is. You know, it is what we got. And so one of the things you touch on repeatedly in the book is false prophecy. It seems like, uh, well, to quote the book, you say, 
We must take great care in deciding whether the information we obtain during a drug experience is accurate, true, or beneficial, rather than simply another way in which we delude ourselves and others. And it seems like there was a lot of scholarly study into the prophetic state accounts. It seems like you've maybe tried to apply this thinking to the DMT encounters, vetting the beings and their messages for either their honesty or their deception. Is that right? Yeah, you have to vet the beans, if you can anyway. <laughs> yeah, and you need to ask them the right questions and then be able to interpret what they're saying back to you. There's an encounter in the book of Joshua. He's about to attack Jericho, and he has a vision of an angel, like a scary being, you know, with a sword in its hand, you know, kind of like one of my volunteers did. <laughs> and, you know, Joshua turns to the being or confronts the being and says, are you with us or are you against us? And the angel responded in the positive, you know, like I'm here to help. But just that question and the approach you take with a being to, you know, fearlessly say, you know, who are you and what are you here for? Then they're in a way compelled to respond honestly. So if the angel, you know, said to Joshua, I'm against you, then, you know, Joshua would respond a lot differently. <laughs> so there's the whole question of false prophecy. Who do you believe? Or what visions do you believe? What beings do you believe? But also, you know, the figure of the prophet. You know, a lot of people who take a lot of psychedelics want to present themselves as a prophet, as a spiritually enlightened individual as a result of their drug use. So in a way, they're claiming prophecy as in their possession. So you want to make certain that it's not false prophecy, you know, that it's good, it's helpful, it's true. So in the prophetic literature, there's a lot of discussion about what's a true prophet and what's a false prophet. And it's kind of a moving target, but there are some basic guidelines. You know, all because an individual can perform a miracle does not mean that they are a prophet. You need to look at the message rather than at the miracle. So if the message goes against the notion of one God and the importance of the golden rule, it's not prophecy. It's not a prophetic message. So that person is a false prophet. The other is that you look at the character of the individual, either the prophetic figure in the text or the psychedelic individual in the present, and you look at their character. You know, are they good people or are they bad people, I guess? You know, do they beat their spouse? Do they steal? Do they lie? Do they bully? That kind of a person you would not follow no matter what they said, because they're a debased character. So both character and the message, I think, are the main discriminating criteria. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because when people have these experiences, they tend to be so astonished, they take them at face value. And then you dig a little deeper and it's like, well, we should maybe unpack this a little more carefully 
And of course, the character of the individual is important because they could just be making the whole thing up to try to seem special. But what about the character of the entities themselves? I mean, how would you even really assess such a thing? You mentioned the guidelines of if they violate the truth that there is one true God, that's something that's frowned upon, of course, in the church. And the golden rule is very important. But I do hear a lot of DMT reports where they describe a lot of love, maybe not even language necessarily, but that the beings are communicating some type of love. So it just gets difficult because especially if they're trying to deceive, they might present themselves in one way, just seems very difficult. Is there more you can say about either criteria we would use or just how to assess such a thing, especially when they aren't even our, our own encounters? You know, a lot of these are something that you're having to interpret third hand. Right. Yeah, that's a key notion. Well, you know, there's a couple of issues that you raised. You know, one is the fact that the beings are oftentimes beneficent. They are loving and healing. Yeah, and that's fine. I mean, there's no problem with that. That's great. But because you have that experience, it doesn't necessarily make you special. It isn't that you've become a prophet or you're enlightened. So that's, you know, one issue is to not go overboard or to misinterpret the nature of the interaction with the being if it is beneficial. And the other issue is, you know, how to actually distinguish between a beneficent being and a a more malevolent one. And it isn't easy all the time. You know, one of my colleagues said to avoid beings with horns or fangs or stingers or those kinds of things, you know, like horrible-looking beings. So I'm not sure if that is a universal finding, but it's good advice in general. I think you also need to be able, like you were describing before, you need to be able to vet the beings. So you want some techniques to be able to do that. So you can ask them questions, and there's a lot of good examples of people in the Hebrew Bible asking questions of the beings, of the angels. If they don't understand what's going on, they can ask the angel to explain. You can argue with them. You can ask for things that are important. You can praise them. You can thank them. You know, so there's a number of ways of interacting with the beings that you can learn about from the accounts of prophetic experience in the text, which is a very interesting notion. You know, most people, when they think about the Hebrew Bible, they get a little upset. (laughs) You know, they become up in arms a bit. But if you look at it carefully from an unbiased point of view, like with you know fresh eyes, as it were, there's a lot of useful information and ideas and techniques that can be found there. You know, it's interesting, the whole Jewish-Hebrew Bible thing. And it's your reception by the New Age. The psychedelic community, 
in particular. But I guess, you know, more to the point could be, you know, the Buddhist community. There is a book which just came out about a month ago called American Jubu. And it's all about relationship between Buddhism and Judaism. And, you know, she does, you know, raise the issue of psychedelics, that a lot of people became Buddhist after taking acid. And a lot of people that turned to Judaism also were experienced with psychedelics that kind of opened a window to get them to start to look at the tradition in a more experiential manner. So a couple of years ago, I was invited to do a TEDx talk in a community on the West Coast with a large Vipassana presence, Buddhist presence. And the person that invited me wanted me to discuss the current situation with psychedelics. So I said, well, I've kind of moved into the more religious elements of the implications of my work. And he said, oh, that's cool. There's a lot of Buddhists here. Most of the people in the audience will dig that. And I said, well, I'm coming at it from the perspective of the Hebrew Bible. And he said, well, you know, that might be a problem. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, how exactly? He said, well, you know, that's religious. So I said, well, you know, Buddhism is religious. I mean, there's all these Buddhists, most of whom were, you know, Jews in the first place. And he said, well, you know, Buddhism really isn't a religion, but Judaism is somehow. You know, so the whole thing of reintroducing the Hebrew Bible to the larger group has been a challenge, but I stick to it. I think it's a great model. It's not the only model, but it's an alternative. It's a Western one. It underlies a Western civilization, so there's something to be said of that count. So, yeah, it's been interesting. Yeah, you got to follow the road that feels best to you, and if it feels right, go with it. And before we run out of time, we got to switch gears a little bit just to tell people about your semi-autobiographical novel, Joseph Levy Escapes Death. Probably a surprise to people, but I guess what should they know about this book that Amazon categorizes as medical humor? Medical humor, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's an account of the life and times of my alter ego, Joseph Levy, who falls ill in the 2010s with a couple of bad infections, bad health care, calamitous internet date relations. Yeah, just <laughs> you know, kind of the modern palette of health care and, you know, internet dating. <laughs> yeah, you know, so it's experiences which are perceived through a certain lens, like a certain aspect, a certain character kind of curmudgeonly, kind of funny, you know, complains, is hopeful, things work out, things don't work out, he feels betrayed, he feels rewarded, and it's kind of dark. It there is. is a fair amount of medical humor, a little like, you know, what do things smell like? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yep. Yeah. So I think it's ranked most highly in the medical humor part. But, you know, still, sales are slow. I went with a one-man publisher, which I have since determined is kind of like self-publishing. So, you know, the marketing is the main thing at that point. 
But yeah, it's ranked 10,000 for medical humor, you know, but for the other things, even lower. So, you know, lots of people describe that they laugh when they read the book. So that's a good thing. You know, part of my intent was to get people to laugh or to have people laugh. But it's, you know, kind of dark too. You know, some, I was reading a review on Goodreads and the reviewer said, I was glad when it was over. <laughs> I, I was happy to finish the book. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like a Rorschach test, like an inkblot test. You know, your reaction to the book kind of determines or is a function of your personality. If you have no sense of humor, you hate the book. If you're really progressive, liberal, new age, intersectional person, you'll hate the book. But if you've been around the block and you aren't so idealistic, it's pretty funny. It is. You're right that it's dark and it is humorous and it gets pretty raw at times. I mean, I definitely appreciated some of Joseph's inner dialogue and his commentary on the people he encounters. And of course, a little herpes and diarrhea sprinkled in there for good measure. Yeah, it is pretty dark. <laughs> and well, I guess I'd ask you why through the lens of an alter ego rather than just a straight autobiography? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. A few months ago, you know, Graham Hancock and I you know, were having dinner, you know, before the events that we did in Sedona in May. And he said, what's the difference between you and Joseph Levy? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm a nicer guy. Hmm. So that's kind of the difference between the two characters. You know, Joseph Levy is an exaggeration. Like a, you know, number of slices of my personality, which are amplified and isolated for effect to tell a good story, stir people up, make them laugh. So you can't quite do that with the true autobiographical approach because you know, that's a bit, you know, more nuanced and addresses a different collection of issues. Yes. And if you are going to be that dark and raw and sometimes negative or aggressive, people are going to come and put that on you and they're going to think that's about you, whether or instead of just saying it's a splinter of yourself and it's a part of you, but you know, you don't have to own all that stuff. Sticking with the Jewish theme, it's similar to Curb Your Enthusiasm. Larry David often says that the way he is in the show is a lot of times how he might visualize things if he had the balls to do them the way he might want to in his head. And it's, it's similar. It's, it's, a, it's a characterization or a dramatization of maybe some of that inner dialogue wrapped up in a disembodied person, wrapped up and put it in the Joseph Levy canister, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. It's an exaggeration, caricature, constructed in you know, such a manner as to be entertaining and engrossing. And has it been surprising to people to see that be your next book? Usually you're in this, this realm of heavy science. Have people followed you over to this new category? Yeah, you know, why did I write the book? Well, my standard answer is, you know, writers write. And to be honest, it took me a long time to recover from being sick, and I wrote a lot. I did a lot of journaling. And then when I started to recuperate and felt fine again, 
I spent a lot of time in psychotherapy. Like, you know, how did that happen? And I want to make sure that doesn't happen again. So I was processing it like a lot for a number of years afterwards. And it was just what was on my mind and what I was writing about. So after a certain point, I looked at all of this stuff I had written. It's like, oh, you know, there's a little book here. So mm -hmm. that's kind of how it came about. Right on, right on. Well, it is enjoyable. And I hope people do follow you over there as different as it is from your previous work. And so just before we go, I don't usually make these things personal, but I do have the great Dr. Strassman here. And it's just a few months before I'm going on an ayahuasca retreat in Peru. I'm already signed up, deposits paid, flights are booked, and I have some psychedelic experience, but nothing like this. Do you have any advice for a person who is going to soon be going into this intense ayahuasca experience? Well, yeah, you know, develop your tool bag. Develop some things you want to work on. You know, work on your intent. I think that's probably the most important thing is work on your intent. But at the same time, educate yourself about ways to deal with the experience, the beings, the emotions, the physical sensations. Yeah, you know, training. You'll be stimulating your imagination with the ayahuasca. And in the meantime, you need to kind of develop the rational faculty, the intellect, in your preparation for the visions. Good advice. And based on the YouTube comments I see sometimes, I got the tool bag thing down pretty well. <laughs> but, man, it's going to be awesome. Obviously a little scary, but anything worth doing is a little scary. And I could talk to you all day, but I really should be letting you get on with your day. Do remind the people maybe about the book or any sort of social media stuff or links you might want them to have before we really button this thing up. Well, I have a Facebook page. You know, there's a couple of specious Rick Strassman's on there, you know, some fakes, but I'm pretty easy to find on Facebook. And also, I have my own website, rickstrassman.com, and I answer every email. Or, well, that's not entirely true. I've probably you know, not <laughs> answered one or two emails in 20 years, but I you know, do my best to answer you know, most emails. And you can order the books through my website. I will you know, sign and inscribe them. So consider that. Yeah, and I have the links podcasts like this one and videos and things on my website and I post them when they're up on Facebook as well. Right on. Very cool. Well, you've definitely put your mark on the world and I was really impressed with DMT and the soul of prophecy. Getting down to the nature of these beings and these experiences is a tough thing to do, so I salute you for trying. Thanks again and do take care. Well, thanks. Oh, you know, one point or, you know, one thing I want to say before we completely sign off. Sure. A couple of years ago, a book came out called DMT Dialogues by Park Street Press. DMT Dialogues. I think it came out in 2018. And it's all about the beans. It's transcribed talks that occurred up in Tieringham Institute. And there's a conference there about the DMT beings and the lectures that were given including one that I gave, are transcribed into DMT dialogues. 
So if you really want to get into the weeds with the beings, I've got a chapter in there as well, which is kind of my latest, you know, thinking about the beings. Um, you know, that's a good place to start. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I definitely appreciate that resource. And In the Weeds with the Beans sounds like a good name for a podcast, should you ever start one. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> All right, man. Well, hey, thanks again. Huge fan of your work. Thanks for spending the time with me. I'm honored. I'm humbled. And I can't wait to get this out to people. Yeah, it was a great conversation. Thanks a lot. You got it. Take care. And as the Mandalorians say, this is the way, good people. Mm. Dr. Rick Strassman in the house. Probably not what the people expected, but hopefully something the people enjoyed. Obviously, Rick's work had a big impact on the subjects I'm interested in. I remember reading The Spirit Molecule while working in the Sunglass Hut kiosk in the UTC Mall many moons ago. I would never have thought I'd have any reason or chance to interview him down the line. It's a crazy world we live in, and maybe this comparison of the beings that show up in prophetic states in the Hebrew Bible wouldn't be my first choice of subjects, but a breakdown of any beings from anywhere is provocative enough for me. And I'm glad I got to ask him some things point blank, because his work has been kind of brought into the realms of bro science and hippie ideology. You know, a lot of people have run to some pretty extreme lengths with his work, and it seems clear to me that he likes to be a bit more measured and methodical, even though the subject matter is quite strange. So yeah, this might not have been the exact point in Dr. Strassman's career and line of study that interests me most, But when Dr. Strassman has a new book out, you jump on it if you host a show like this. The book is quite awesome with all the dense categories of material to analyze. And I voiced my concern with the authenticity of the prophetic state accounts. They pass through many hands. They're written down or possibly tweaked to be included in a religious context in this grouping of stories, so certain details could be twisted to fit the narrative of the church. And clearly we're not talking about the Vatican, but this is still foundational material, so I'm still a little skeptical. But what do I know? He's been studying this stuff for many years. I'd rather just celebrate the moment and not get too hung up on it. I just want to have a good time. And a good time we did have. It's definitely a book that I'm glad to have on the shelf, and even if you're only primarily interested in the one half of it, there's no better detail-for-detail breakdown of the beans that people experience on DMT that I've found. And it's interesting that Dr. Strassman seems a bit more skeptical, or at least more cautious when it comes to the DMT entities. There are nuances in the messages and the interactions that would make a person feel that way. I fully understand. Some particular accounts are quite brutal, but if your only interaction with a human happened to be the Zodiac Killer, that might just as easily cover your perspective of humans. So surely there are exceptions to every rule, but it's damn fun to talk about. And it's just kind of exciting to get past the are the entities real kind of conversation and start way further down the road to actually profiling them and analyzing that data from even the prophetic state accounts with Dr. Strassman's background is a real treat. 
It's like he pulled out the exact parts of the Hebrew Bible that I would care about and then held them up to the light. And however you look at it, as he said in the interview, you have to vet the beans. So consider them vetted, people. And in this episode and every episode, there is an extra hour for plus subscribers and Patreon people. And in today's, we get deeper into the weird stuff. How Dr. Strassman views the imagination. Where do these beings come from? What do we know about their realm? Comparing and contrasting the emotional content of these experiences. What Dr. Strassman thinks about the nexus of psychedelic culture, Silicon Valley, and where ideas come from. Are smartphones the work of demons? We also talked about the Huxley-Leary debate. Who should be messing with these compounds? Should they only be for the elite or should they be for the masses? And we got a nice little anecdote about Rick's 1986 DMT trip administered by the late, great Terrence McKenna himself. So fun stuff that I really hadn't heard Dr. Strassman talk about before personally. Also, before we go, I have to give a shout out to THC's magic man behind the curtain, our audio editor who worked his magic on this one for sure and stitched Dr. Strassman's choppy signal out of the conversation. He was on a less than perfect internet connection when we recorded this and our editor tried his best to hide that fact. Sign up for Plus if you like what I do and how I do it at thehiresidechats.com. That's the show. Big thanks again to the good doctor. Check out his books if they've piqued your interest, and I will see you next time. Your move, spirits, beings, demons, angels, and the vast entities of the other world. Your fucking move. <laughs>